This morning, I'm going to present an important topical message. By that I mean I'm not going to be dealing with one specific passage of Scripture, but I am going to make reference to several scriptural references. I say it's important because of a big problem, Christianity today, especially in our country. For in our land, we find a society with a lot of attention on strength and power. Sports lead the way. Mountains of men clashing at the goal line. Seven-footers slam-dunking the ball down for the net. Prodigious 450-feet home runs. Bone-crushing hockey hits into the glass. Then, of course, there are the extreme activities. Rock climbing, hang gliding, mountain conquests, survivor contests, the X Games, skateboarders and their daring feats. And we turn on our television sets or go to see a movie, and what do we find? Car chases, violent explosions, full-body wrestling slams, cage fights. This is the era of growing fitness centers, pumping iron, sweating on treadmills. But into this modern power culture comes the church to present Jesus. Jesus. Even the name doesn't quite seem to ring in our world like Chad, Doug. Trevor, Lance, LeBron. And what about men and boys today? Isn't the church simply for women and girls? Why do we need it? Jesus? How does he fit into our world today? There are two particular explanations for this this attitude toward Jesus. One, pictures of Jesus. We've all seen them. The artists, however, often represent him as somewhat weak, effeminate, even emaciated at times. And at times, he seems to have a baffled look on his face. He's usually depicted in a white robe with pasty skin, a little rouge, perhaps, on his cheeks, golden locks, and a halo over his head. How does he fit in to our world today? So that's one reason why we have that attitude toward Jesus. Another is liberal theology. That Jesus has been presented only as, pati only as patient, kind, meek, mild, sentimental, inoffensive, going to any length not to hurt anybody or to make anybody angry. Sort of an ancient Mr. Rogers. Therefore, we can see him sipping tea at a women's luncheon. But honestly now, would you expect him to participate in the church softball team? Or go on a hike overnight or two or three days up in the mountains, trudging on trails and 
going through bushes and so on. Doesn't seem to fit into that, does he? He who has been called the Lion of Judah in Scripture has been declawed, so as to become only a household pet. But is that the Jesus of the Bible? The Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in particular? Is that what the Bible really reveals of him? We have come to forget his courage, his fearlessness, his loyalty, his determination. We have forgotten the Jesus who tore to shreds the religious leaders of his day. The Jesus who was so independent that he became the despair of his family and even his own disciples. Dorothy Sayers has written, It is time to rescue the true figure of Jesus from the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon him and set him on an open stage to startle the world into some kind of vigorous reaction. We do him little honor by watering down his personality until it could not offend a fly. So that's what I want to do in these next few moments to try to help you see the Jesus we forget, but so clearly is set forth in the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to begin with his physical strength and appearance to his contemporaries. Now, we don't have a lot about Jesus in his first 30 years. His birth, of course, quite a bit said about that. And then at 12 years old, being in the temple, that incident. And that's about it. But Luke helps us in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where it says, as he began his, ready to begin his public ministry, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. In other words, physically, he was strong. Socially, he grew up normally. He was accepted into his society. Mark 6, verse 3 tells us that he was a carpenter. Now think about that. We believe, we understand his father Joseph also was a carpenter. But what was involved in being a carpenter? Well, you had to dig trenches and holes and hard, rocky ground. You had to fell and transport heavy trees. You had to carry heavy implements on your shoulders and your back. Being a carpenter, especially in those days, was hard work, hard, tough labor, not a job for the weak. And I believe also that Joseph would have had a great influence on him, a masculine influence in his life. Throughout his public ministry, we find he was an outdoor man. Most of his teaching was on lake shores, rocky hills, and Jesus walked and walked and walked and walked from one village to another village to another village to another village. He walked constantly. Undoubtedly, he had a very well-tanned face. The evidence in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is of a strong man. What about his temptation in Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses? We are told there that this was a very desolate wilderness in the lower Jordan Dead Sea area. Mark adds that out there he was with the wild animals and Archaeologists have discovered that in those days there were hyenas and jackals 
panthers, and lions. On top of those animals, you had snakes and scorpions and spiders of all kinds. We are told in that passage that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights without food. I had an acquaintance of mine some years ago who joined the Air Force. He told me that one of the things that he had to do was to get in a helicopter and they would fly him out to the middle of Montana or Idaho, some mountain range, and they'd lower the helicopter down, he'd get out, and they'd leave him there for three days. For three days, he had just basically like a knife, a water canteen, a few other little things. He had to exist on his own for three days. The idea being that in case, as an airman, he had to uh, crash land his plane or he had to bail out, whatever, he could survive in that kind of a terrain but virtually nothing. I remember him telling me about that, and I, I just admired him so much. I said, you, you went through that. <laughs> I, I can't imagine myself doing that. But on top of the physical aspects of his temptation, Jesus experienced the tremendous power of Satan himself, the devil. What moral courage he had to make that stand against those temptations. What Herculean self-control and I ask you men and boys here today, would you be able to be out in a wilderness like that for 40 days and 40 nights with just some water, no food? How would you do? A month over a month. I wonder how many American he-men today could do that. Jesus did it. Then we come to the calling of the first disciples, also in that fourth chapter of Matthew. He goes north to Galilee, settles in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what was his initial message? Did he call people together and say, be kind and show love to one another? That is my basic message. Nope. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, that is beginning his public ministry, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's too much disobedience to the Lord God, and you need to get right with God. That was his opening comment. And then right after that, he calls his 12 disciples. He begins, as we're told in Matthew 4, with Simon and Andrew, and James and John. Well, who were they? They were fishermen. Now, I mentioned that carpentry was a very hard work job. So was it being a fisherman, especially in those days when they had to handle these very heavy nets, throw the nets out into the lake, and then pull them in with the, the uh, fish that were inside, adding more weight to the nets. It was a tough job. Now, I don't believe that when Jesus came and said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, that he just showed up one day and kind of put them in a hypnotic state. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I think he took a lot of time to get to know these men, talk with them, explain who he was, explain what he came to do, what the task would be at hand if he were the, it would be his disciples. And after laying it all out for them, then he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And later, of course, he called others. He stirred their hearts and minds by the strength of his character, by his powerful personality. 
and the impelling force of his influence. And during the next three years, in addition to the 12 disciples, many other men and women began to follow him and become his disciples, his learners. What about his general public ministry? We don't have time to deal with all the passages in these gospel accounts that demonstrate the strength and power of Jesus. But let's just think of a few things. After calling his first disciples, he immediately began an active, energetic preaching and teaching ministry, attracting multitudes. Here are these verses from, again from Matthew 4, 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Health flowed out from him as he restored health to others. And when he shouted, rise up and walk, it came from the lips of a strong man, not a weak man. And what radical ideas he laid upon his hearers. For example, Matthew 7, 28, 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were used to their scribes saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this. But here comes Jesus saying, but I say to you. And when he said that, they paid attention. The amazing miracles demonstrating his power, his healings, exorcisms, calming a storm. Would you believe Jesus the party boy? Well, Luke 7, 34 tells us, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was a very social being. He was invited many times to homes, much sought-after dinner gifts. In other words, he, was, he adapted himself to normal human pleasures. He wasn't an outsider. He wasn't a milk toast. He wasn't a party pooper. wasn't somebody you didn't want around. People welcomed him. Often his comments were filled with humor. Unstable Simon, he called Rocky, or Rock, Peter, meaning that. James and John, who had a trouble with their anger, he called Sons of Thunder. Talked about everybody's concerned about the speck in somebody else's eye, and you're walking around with a log in your eye. He talked about gagging on a gnat, swallowing a camel. And when Jesus said these things, I have to assume that those who heard him expressed much laughter at that because they're such ridiculous, crazy things. And so he won them over even with his humor, even though we think of him as a man of sorrows. Well, then we have the incident in John chapter 2 of the money changers in the temple. 
The Jewish religious leaders had a very lucrative financial racket in the temple area. To save people time and trouble, they brought sacrificial animals into the areas of the courtyard of the temple. So you could buy your sacrificial animals right there. They also set up tables with Jewish coins on them because Jews could only offer Jewish coins for their offering, and so they would make exchanges for those that needed to make a money exchange of some kind. Jesus walked into the temple on this particular day in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and he didn't like what he saw. It was too much for him. And soon he was grabbing something that looked like a, a rope of some sort, and he began to make a whip out of it. I'm sure when he started doing that, his disciples looked at him and said, what's our master doing? He makes this whip. And then much to their horror, he starts going around and using the whip on these men in the temple and driving them out of the temple with their animals. Then he walks over to the tables with the coins on them and flips them over. My house, my father's house is a house of prayer. And you have desecrated it. When that happened, I can see his disciples with their mouths open, looking at one another, and the more he did it, the more they kind of cowered, you know, like this. I can believe what he's doing. Now, certainly, what he did demonstrated divine judgment, but also evident was his humanity. They saw the power and authority of a man who was right before God, and they quivered. This incident was also repeated later on, we're told in Mark chapter 11, he did the same thing. But many of them did not learn their lesson that first time. Well, what about his later public activity? The early days of his ministry were very positive for the most part. People were interested in him, enthusiastic. They gathered around him. Yet from the outset of his public ministry, he knew he was antagonizing the most powerful leaders in that nation, in that society, by his radical teaching. Mark 11, 15 and 16, excuse me, Mark 11, 27 28. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus of Nazareth, who, who do you think you are? What right do you have to do what we should be doing? So you see the reaction they were getting to what he had to say. Yet not once did he pull his punches or tone down his ideas to make them more palatable and acceptable. He kept right on speaking his mind. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are full of such passages as we've been considering this morning. Time and again, he clashed with those religious leaders. Critically, he attacked their arguments. Matthew 15, verses 1 to 3. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, they weren't concerned that their hands were, had the virus on them or that they were dirty. It was a religious ceremony, a religious thing to demonstrate that they were trying to be right with God. Well, the disciples didn't do that. And so Jesus confront, 
they were confronted Jesus with this. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Came right back at them. Sometimes he deliberately broke their rules. Luke 11, 37-38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Same thing again. Jesus deliberately did that to make a point that you read further on in that passage. He spoke very harsh words to the Jewish people. Over in John chapter 8, verse 37, they had been glorying the fact that they claimed Abraham, Abraham was their father. And he replied, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's business and desires. And then at the end of that whole passage there, where Jesus goes back and forth with them, this is how it ended. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Finally, at the end of his public ministry, he denounced the nation itself in the strongest of terms. And if you're not familiar with that, sometime read Matthew chapter 23. And you will find Jesus saying this to the religious leaders of his day. You hypocrites! You blind guides! You blind fools, you whitewashed tombs, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Wow. He stands aghast at his language, at his words. It was the God-man, you see, he experienced a wide range of emotions, Self-righteousness infuriated him. Obstinacy frustrated him. But simple faith thrilled him. He was more emotional and spontaneous than the average person, not less. More passionate, not less. And surely you can't say that Jesus was boring or predictable. We come to his trial. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have much to say about the trial. And among other things, physically, he was bound, slapped, spit upon, hit, flogged, crowned with thorns, profaned in many horrible ways. He had to have had a very strong physical body to endure even all of that not to mention a strong self-discipline to keep from retaliation. And then when we come to the crucifixion, well, they don't say much about the crucifixion itself. Crucifixion was such a horrible death that the Roman Senate enacted a law that no Roman citizen could ever be crucified. Jesus endured that. He refused a drink, an opiate drink to deaden his pain. 
finally, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, 10. What self-control. He always was the master of the situation right up to the end of his physical life. I'd like to share four applications with you, this brief survey of what we said to demonstrate who Jesus really was, what it really was like. How people in our society today might think more highly of him if they realized what the Bible really says about him. Four things. Number one, the dominant personality of Jesus in history. You can't ignore it. Not just his infinite deity, but his magnificent humanity. It's long overdue for people to put out of their minds those pictures of Jesus. It's not easy to do because we've seen them. They're on our minds. It's hard to get rid of that. We need to put that aside as much as we can. The Bible nowhere describes how Jesus looked. Number two, sinners like us need a strong, mighty, powerful Savior because of our enslavement to sin in which we were born and the demands of God's holy law so impossible to meet. At the final judgment to say, well, I did my best, it's just not going to cut it. We don't need some rabbi of long ago who said, be kind to everyone, obey the golden rule, and try your best to be good. The Savior you and I need must be the Savior of the biblical gospel message, the God-man, the Son of God in human flesh, who willingly went to the cross to be a substitute for our sins, take upon himself the punishment we deserve, that our sins might be forgiven and our hearts cleansed. What did the angel say to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' father? You shall call his name Jesus. Another name for that is Joshua. And what it means is Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is the mighty deliverer. So the name Jesus is packed with power. Never forget that. Number three, his followers are to be conformed to Christ's image as much as possible. This includes being strong, being courageous, being persevering, and faithful. And even you who have quiet personalities, you tend not to say much and run with people, and you, when you speak, you speak very quietly, you can still be strong inward and internally in your hearts and souls. And fourthly, to be a Christian is not for the faint of heart. Now we have it fairly easy in the United States today, but down through the centuries, those that have been identified with Christ have suffered terrible, terrible persecution, torture, death. But the call to follow Christ is a call to adventure of, of risks and unknown factors. When he called those 12 disciples, he, I think, he, as I said earlier, he laid it on the line for them. This is what you're getting into. And they followed him anyway. Tragically, much of the church today has watered all this down. It's become weak and frail. We have a Savior and a Lord who is strong enough to give us by his Spirit the tools and abilities we need to honor him. 
We are strong in our faith. Now to conclude. I read about a famous 17th century painting that hung in a museum. And the creators of the museum thought to themselves, we need to clean that canvas. It's getting grimy and so on, and we need to clean that off. But they delayed for such a long time because this was such a priceless painting. But finally they realized, we, we just got to do it. So they gave instructions to the workmen, be as careful as you can. And they were. But even with all that care, they began to notice little specks began to fly off the painting. Things began to disintegrate. And the more they cleaned, the more they, this happened, and they suddenly looked, and lo and behold, underneath all those specks and things were were falling off, was the original painting. Some artist had tried to improve it by touching it up. And they covered the original, and all they had was the covering. Today, by trying to make Jesus more attractive, more appealing, we're making him less attractive, less appealing. So for those of you that your trust is in Jesus, you have a strong, powerful Savior. For those in this room or hearing my voice on the live stream, perhaps you have not yet committed yourself. Maybe one of the things that's been keeping yourself from doing that is you've had this idea that Jesus is such a weak, frail kind of person, doesn't really fit in with our life. He fits in with our life and our society and always will. His kingdom will never end. It's an eternal kingdom. He's calling his people to himself. Is the Lord speaking to you to make sure you are right with him through Jesus? Salvation, mighty deliverer. Let's do away with the man-made improvements that men try to make. Commit ourselves to the Jesus we so often and so easily forget. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, that he endured so much that you gave him the strength and by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, he went all the way to the cross for us. We might be delivered from our sinful state and brought into fellowship with you. And so we praise and thank you for him and we rest our faith in him alone. We pray this in his name, amen.